following message is by a guest speaker of Emmanuel Community Church. More information about the ministry of Emmanuel Community Church can be found online at www.emmanuelcommunity.org. A man by the name of Pastor Dan Kimball made an interesting video called uh, The Dangers of the Christian Bubble. The Dangers of the Christian Bubble. In this video, Pastor Dan asked some non-Christian students from a college campus located near his church what they thought about Jesus. Uh, The answers may actually surprise you. Believe in Jesus? Why not? His teachings were inspirational. His teachings and beliefs were pure. Another person said, he's the first historical figure that didn't treat women as second-class citizens. And Jesus, Jesus, he, who, who, he was beautiful and loving and basically enlightened like, a, like another Buddha or something. Another person said this, you have to admire anyone who would die in what they believe in. And one more person said, I'm all about Jesus. I love Jesus. A second question was asked, what do you think of Christians? And some of these answers may not surprise you. Dogmatic, close-minded individuals. I met some pseudo-Christians and to tell you what you should believe in, they should be taken out back and shot. They don't apply the love is everything message of Jesus. Most of the students interviewed had these views of Christians because of one factor. They have never met a real and genuine Christian, ever, in their life. They've never met one. Their exposure to Christians was from uh, the media, televangelists, bad movies, bad Christian movies, a.k.a. Left Behind. Did you see that one? Yeah. Listen to what Gandhi, the great religious leader of Hinduism, said. I would have become a Christian if I met one. I've never met any true Christian in my life. Well, how could this be, right? How could a world-renowned leader of one of the biggest religions in the world not have met one Christian? Not one. One of the things for the lack of Christian witness is what we call the Christian bubble, a place where Christians congregate, live, and stay in selfishness and comfort. And we see this fallen tendency happening since the beginning. We're going to look into Genesis 11, 1, 9, and this took place. This is the, this is the, the classic passage of the Tower of Babel, and this is after Noah's family survived the flood that killed all of creation in Genesis 9. And went on to repopulate the earth. Now here in Genesis 11, 1 to 9, is an account of Noah's descendants and their great transgression against God. So please uh, follow along as I read Genesis 11, 1 to 9. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and 
bitumen for mortar. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, behold, they are one people and they have all one language. And this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and there confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth and they left off building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth, and from the Lord disperse them over the face of all the earth. Now, if you ever did a Bible study or heard a sermon on this passage, you would have probably heard a message centered on pride and maybe the dangers um, of trying to make a name for yourself in that pride. As a result, God just lets them have it, right? Gives them a, gives them a lesson they'd never forget, right? Older siblings are like that. I'm going to give you a lesson little sibling that you'll never forget, right? Kind of like a big brother or sister. And if you didn't know any better, one can even come to the conclusion that God made different ethnicities and languages as products of punishment, right? That ethnic, culture, and linguistic differences found in our world today are the fruits of a curse caused by the evil or sinful behavior of humankind, but, but let's, let's do some scripture gymnastics and flip backwards, right? Let's flip backwards in our Bibles to find the context and God's original intention that led up to the events of this Tower of Babel, okay? So we always got to look at the context of things to get things straight, right? And so let's do that. Genesis 1.22, moving back a little bit. And he says this, And God blessed them, meeting Adam and Eve, saying, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters and the seas and let the birds multiply on the earth. Genesis 1, 27 to 28. So God created man in his image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Verse 28, and and God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Genesis 9.1, and God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, what did he say? Same exact thing that he said to Adam and Eve. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Earth, 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 earth. Genesis 9.7, to Noah and his family after surviving the flood on the ark again. And you be fruitful and multiply, increase greatly on the earth and multiply it. Do you see a pattern here yet? You see it? Now let's go to back to our passage because this pattern is what? It's this constant command, fill the earth, multiply, right? But look at Genesis 11, 4. Let's go back to our passage. Verse 4, then, he, then they said, come, let's build ourselves a city and a tower with its top to the heavens and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. What do, what do we find here? We find a break. We find a break in obedience to the Lord, don't we? Right? The Lord wishes his people to scatter, to spread his glory, his name across the whole world so that all may know him. And what do they do? They build a city. 
They cloister. They try to stay within their safe and cozy bubble. A unity defined by sin. In verse 6 of our story, God comes and gives a divine assessment. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people and they have all one language and this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Now, allow to get, now, now please allow me to get something straight. Okay? In no way, shape, or form is God threatened by humanki- humankind's potential here. Right? Rather, the Lord, God, was troubled as to what would happen to humanity if the human family was left alone without guidance and accountability. That's what he's saying here. What God means is that the people will continue on towards their downward spiral of self-destruction in their direct disobedience displayed by their sinful gathering. What's the real issue here? What, what's going on? What's the real, real issue going on here, right? It's Yes, their, their prideful hearts caused the sinful cloistering, but, but more importantly, there was a lack of concern of God's mandate, of his mission for the world. Listen, an unhealthy church is one that exists for itself. Like the culture is called to transform, such a church devotes an unhealthy amount of time or attention towards one another. Working to get people in the doors of the church building rather than themselves going through the, do- through the doors of the church building. Right? Rather than going to the lost, there's more of a reliance that the lost would come to us. If we simply stay in our safe zones, our church, our small group, our Christian subculture, our, our, the friends, the same friends we constantly hang out with, Constantly hanging out with the same people, right? There's a danger of degrading and self-destructing as a church, just like those in Babel. David DeVries, in his book, Discover Mission of Living, says this. uh, The church today is leaving the building. The church in the United States is declining, dysfunctional, fragmented, marginalized, and internally focused. This is a direct consequence of neglecting its mission. To accelerate Christ's mission, the church needs to get out of the building and into the world. We refuse and pray, and we pray that we just don't become that kind of church, right? A church that is so caught up in our own agenda for our own benefits and and growth of our own kingdoms rather than his. So so what are we called to do then? What are we called to do? We are called to move out and not fall into the temptation of being stuck in comfortable, disobedient gatherings. Instead of disobedient gatherings, we are actually called to a holy scattering. Not disobedient gatherings, but we're called to a holy, a holy scattering. Right? Listen, the Lord has always intended his people to fill the earth and spread. He has always meant for his church to be a movement rather than a stationary institution. God's people were always called to disperse, to, to scatter, okay? And by God's kindness and grace, he continues to thwart his redemptive plan for despite his rebellion. Check this out, Genesis 11, 8, 9. So the Lord dispersed them. In their disobedience, he's just like, here, right? And they left off building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth and and from there, the Lord dispersed them over the face of the earth. We, we see that ethnic and cultural and linguistic diversity in of themselves, it's not evil. Nope. 
Not evil at all, right? It's not sinful. But what? It's an instrument of God's grace, isn't it? Cultural and linguistic diversity is an instrument of God's grace. God's intervention with the creation of diverse languages actually forced them to fulfill God's original command to what? Fill the earth. So what's going on here? The Lord gave, the Lord gave grace, right? The Lord gave grace. Instead of destroying them, he gave grace. He makes a way for obedience to his mandate. Later we find that God's called to Abraham and later the people of Israel to be a light to all nations. So we see this pattern. I'm going to blitz you with a bunch of verses to kind of just reinforce this idea that throughout the Bible you see this pattern of scattering, right, in his grace. Genesis 12, 1 to 3, Now the Lord said to Abraham, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you and I will make you of a great nation. Skipping down, I will bless you. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And we see more examples of this in the Old Testament. Let's look at Isaiah 6, 8 in, in his vision, epiphany of the Lord. Verse 8, and I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I, then I said, here I am. Here, send, send me. Let me go. Okay. Psalm 90, 96, 3, declare glory among the nations, his marvelous works among the peoples. Psalm 105, 1, give thanks to the Lord. Call upon his name. Make known the deeds among his people. All right, that's the Old Testament, right? Let's, let's go to the New Testament now, okay, the New Testament. Now, when you go to the New Testament, you may argue, well, what about the early church in Acts 2? They seem pretty good. If we read Acts 2, 42 to 47, they were a happy and blessed community. Look, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. They were selling the possessions belonging, distributing all the proceeds, attending the temple together, breaking bread together. The Lord added to the number day by day. Those were, they were all good, right? A healthy, happy community. But then what do we look at? What happens in Acts 8? What happens in Acts 8, right? 8.1, 8, 8, and Saul approved of his execution, means Stephen's execution. And there arose on the day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all what? They were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. Okay. Well, let's look at the words and life of Jesus. Now, if you turn to John 10, 1 to 18, it talks about him being a great shepherd. If I were to ask you, what are the qualities of a good shepherd? Okay. Well, what are the qualities of a good shepherd? Now, I, I would ask you, and I would, I would probably want a response, but you're wearing masks, so I couldn't, probably wouldn't hear much, right? But, but what, are the, what are the qualities of a good shepherd? If you read John 10, 1, 8, it says, well, he, the sheep knows him, and he knows, and, and, and he loves them, right? That's a good shepherd. Right? What else? Well, well, the good shepherd protects his sheep. The good, the good, this good shepherd guides his sheep. He actively looks for any lost sheep. That's a good shepherd. Jesus is a great shepherd. And, here, and probably most importantly, Jesus loves his sheep so much he dies. He dies for his sheep, right? But check this out. Matthew 10, 16. Behold, I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves so that be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. This good shepherd actually, yes, loves, guides, comforts, but also <coughs> you go into wolves, Classic, Matthew 28, 18, verse 19. Go, therefore, make disciples. Write the Great Commission. Go, and therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the, name of Father, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Also, before Jesus ascends to the heavens, 1, 8, Acts 1, 8, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And then finally, Jesus' high priestly prayer for you and me and for all believers in John 17, 18. 
talking to the Father, as you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. Okay. All right, I just, I just blissed you with a bunch of verses there, right? So what, what can we gather from this survey? What can we gather of this persistent running theme of sending and scattering, right? It is this. The Lord has always intended his people to fill the earth and spread, and he always meant for his church to be a movement, again, rather than a stationary institution. God, God's people were always called to scatter. They were always called to be sent. Jesus never said for the world to come into the church. What he did say was for the church to go out into the world. Churches aren't to be about seating capacity, but about what? They're to be about sending, sending capacity. You don't just go to church, you are the church, the people of God. And we have an exciting divine task given to us by our Father. The church, the people of God are not concerned about how many people enter their church doors, but concerned of how we get the church out into the world. The world does not exist for the church. The church exists for the world. A healthy community flows out of mission, not the other way around. Listen, all right, community groups, ministries, summer group classes that we just started, hangouts, dinners together, studying of the word together, um, socially distancing with those things. I'm certainly not condemning those things, okay? Those are good. Those are necessary. Those are valuable to build a good church community. But, but when this becomes the ends of the Christian life and vitality, rather than the means of Christian flourishing, that can only be found in also being sent. Okay? Then there may be an unhealthy culture, a Christian bubble, if you will, brewing and growing if these means become an end. Right? We, will, we are placed together in communion, not... Just for community sake, we are placing community for, for mission, right? So, 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 can we, so we can get the confidence. So the, the question is, where can we get the confidence, right? Okay, so we're convinced. All right, so we're supposed to scatter. So the, where do we get the confidence? Where do we get the hope? Where do we get the power to actually do this, right? What's the, what's the hope? Our hope, our power, ding, 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 is always going to be, what, the gospel, Okay. But uh, listen, but not always in the way that we think of the gospel or tell of the gospel. Sometimes the gospel can be pretty incomplete. Listen, um, I used to use this illustration or story all the time when I would do a sermon or a seminar, and I, wanted, I really wanted to get through the, trying to give a good picture of what, what the gospel is all about. And, and so here's, this is the story I would share. Uh, one evening back in uh, my junior high days, me and a bunch of friends were sledding at one of our neighborhood parks. And uh, it was rather steep. It was a rather steep hill. And, man, speeds reached were pretty decent. They were, they were okay. okay. Four or five of us would squeeze into, this, um, squeeze into this sled, kind of like what you see there in the picture. And, um, and uh, we, we did that so that uh, we would go down faster, right? Increase the weight, increase the speed. Okay. And uh, one of these attempts, uh, we were again... Uh, just kind of going down the hill in breakneck speeds, just having a wonderful time. And in one of these runs, uh, there laid before me in our path a child that was probably no older than two years old. He was right, he, he was right in our line. Right? I caught sight of him 
And I was just, I was panicked. I was so panicked. I'm like, there's a kid. There's a kid in front of us. We're going to hit him. And all I could do is just close my eyes. I'm like, this kid is dead. And as I was just clenching my fists, closing my eyes, and just waiting for that impact, I heard my friend behind me go, I got him, I got him. I opened my eyes, I look up, and here's this kid hovering over me. My friend actually picked him up as we were going down and saved him from getting smashed. As we sled down with this child in my friend's hands, in his arms, as we came to a stop, he let him go, and we were just ecstatic. We were celebrating. We were like, yeah, woo, what a move. High five, yeah. Oh, you're the best. The kid, the kid, not knowing just what happened, he just waddles off, right? But there we are just celebrating. We're like, yeah, woo, right? We got him. I can't believe this happened, right? It's amazing. Now, the story gives an obvious message, right? We were that child, helpless, weak, ignorant, rebellious, about to get smashed by God's wrath for our sins and transgressions. But because of Christ, we're picked up and saved from eternal death. Right? We, he makes a way and rescues us. He picks us up and carries us out of harm's way. He saves us from eternal destruction. The end. Amen? Hmm. You just use that story all the time, right? Now, I always thought that was a great story, illustration for the gospel of, course, of Christ. Because, but, it, but it wasn't a complete telling of the gospel. Okay? The child that was rescued by my friend, though there is much to celebrate and take joy in, I wonder, man, what happened to that kid? He just wandered off. We don't even know if he found his parents. Right? Did he find his parents? Did he find his older siblings? After this miraculous rescue, what happened to him? Right? Here's where we fail at times when it comes to the gospel story. We celebrate, are overjoyed, call attention to our own salvation story, but don't take into account what we were saved for. When we look at the cross, we see suffering, what it took to rescue us, we see the love of a relentless Heavenly Father willing to go through such links to find us that we may return to where we rightfully belong, even if it means having his one and only son die. But we sometimes fall into the trap of believing that this is the end of the gospel story. It's not. How do I know this? What are we missing about the gospel that can prevent us from living out a sent life? What's going on? What's the missing piece? Well, let's ask a seemingly elementary question, right? Why the cross? Why the cross of Jesus Christ? Why did that all happen, right? What was it for? Well, we just established that, didn't we? I'm a sinner, and Jesus needed to die for my sins so I can go to heaven, right? Well, yes. And no, right? The answer includes includes that, but also goes beyond our own personal salvation story. On the cross, something cosmic, something universally shattering happened that moves into but also surpasses the scope of our own personal salvation story. What is it? Listen, have you ever observed, have you ever give thought to the fact that Jesus chose to be crucified during Passover? Right? Personally, when I thought of Passover, and when I thought about the cross, I, I thought he was merely giving the picture of the protection the Lord gave his people as he set out to free them from the clutches of Pharaoh in the book of Exodus. Listen, you know the story, right? You know the story. The Lord brought down ten plagues 
right? And the final one was to kill all of the firstborn of the land of Egypt, right? In order for one to be protected from this plague, a lamb was to be slaughtered and the blood was to be painted around the door. You guys remember that, right? When the Lord sees the blood, what would he do? He would pass over that household, right? He would pass over these houses and the plague would not touch them for all the others. But for all the others that didn't do this, right, death was to come to the firstborn. Now, the connection was obvious, right? They kill the lamb and paint the door with its blood. They were saved from the curse of death. For us, you trust in the lamb of God, you paint the blood on your hearts, you believe and trust in Jesus, then you're saved from the curse of death. So this is where I need not to look at this one picture of Passover, but look, my mistake was I need to look at the overarching intention of Passover, okay? The Passover was what? It was the powerful act of the living God conquering and doing away with the powers of evil and darkness, namely Pharaoh, and freeing his people to live the lives that they were meant to live. That's Passover. Not just painting blood around the doorposts, around your door, but it was God's amazing act, powerful act, to free his people from the clutches of evil and darkness. A way of looking at this is like the crucified Christ on the cross is like the vaccine that would free us from COVID-19, right? What would that be like, right? No more masks, no more social distancing, no more hand sanitizer. Well, not as much, right? Home exercise equipment, toilet paper, yeast, and inflatable kiddie pools are now back in stock, okay? But most importantly, what? No more excessive Zoom meetings, Oh, no more Zoom meetings. Amen? Yeah. Amen. No more Zooming. No more, hey, how's it going? And then I try to, for some reason, every time Zoom freezes on you, it catches your worst face, right? I don't know how, I don't know why, it just does that. <laughs> The point I'm trying to make is that we are now freely unleashed. We are now freely unleashed by what was done on the cross, no longer having to succumb to sin's guilt and shame, no longer overpowered by the grip of our idolatry or influenced by the dark forces of the deceiver, our adversary Satan himself, no longer having to fear death, but instead for death no longer, no longer, death no longer has a hold of us. Death becomes the best thing to happen to us rather than the worst. Here's what I'm trying to get at. Here's what I'm trying to get at, okay? Christ died not just for our own personal salvation story, but so that we can be free from the guilt and power of death and sin to what? To scatter and be vice regents, live manifestations, image bearers, ambassadors that live out the lives God has saved us. To live out the lives God has saved us to spread his glory and his image all around the world, living kingdom citizen lives as salt and light, as a tasteless and dark world, to a tasteless and dark world, right? In this new exodus, this is the new exodus now, right? We are freed and unleashed to live lives that have the privilege of playing a part in fulfilling the part of the Lord's prayer that says, may your kingdom come. N.T. Wright says this, the obedient, 
death of Jesus is the way in which the new kind of power is unleashed into the world, the power of sovereign redeeming love. A new reality has come to birth, just as it did when God overthrew the oppressors in Egypt and rescued his people from slavery. The kingdom movement had all along been a new exodus movement. His death really was the new Passover. His death had dealt with the sins that had caused exile in the first place. And this, had been the, and this had been accomplished by Jesus sharing and bearing the full weight of evil and doing so alone. In his suffering and death, sin was condemned. The darkest of dark powers was defeated and its captives were set free. You see? Now, my original question to all this was, where does our hope and power lie in this command to scatter? Right here. Right here, Christ has dealt with the sin that so easily entangles, hinders, destroys. He has made a way for us sinners for obedience, just as he made a way for the sinners of Babel. Part of me wonders if it's this partial, uh, this partial telling of the story of the gospel, if it's our self-centered theology of the gospel, of the cross, if that's what causes a Christian bubble to erupt in our midst, right? Could it be that a core element or a core ailment to the inward-facing hiding within her walls church and inward-facing is due to an inward-facing gospel. Could it be that? Just a thought, right? Indulging ourselves in the commonality of people who have found eternal salvation but never looking to spread that salvation, where are we at? May, May the gospel never stop at our own salvation, right? May the gospel never stop at our own salvation, but may we, may we continue to bring salvation to the world. Amen? So what are we to do? What are we to do with all this? Well, listen, our, our brother Haman, right, we'll get into more of the specifics as to what this calling is more specifically like. Okay? He'll do that next Sunday. But what I would like to speak about is maybe just a few quick applications in response to what we just heard today. No, no um, okay, so it's, it's not a mystery. It doesn't take a rocket scientist to understand that this pandemic, it's done many things. It's done horrible things, right? But one of the things it's done, what has it done to us? It's scattered us, right? It, it's scattered his church for the most part. Okay, so here's three things I would suggest as we continue in our, in our scattered state as a church, Okay. And it's in three R's, really quick. Rhythm, reflect, and respond. Okay, rhythm, reflect, and respond. All right, here we go. Rhythm. Find your present rhythm in the scattered state that we're in. Okay, rhythm. What do I mean? So, listen, I've, I've pressed pretty hard uh, the grace and command of God to scatter, right? But, but allow me to balance it out a bit because please, and I mentioned this a little bit before in the sermon, I just want to remind you, please don't think that this is any way at all contrary to what Pastor Steve uh, preached about on community, Okay? But, but rather, this, is a message, this message is actually meant to be complementary to his message, right? Um, to be a loving community to one another is a command in the Bible, but it's not the end. Community is always a means. Okay? Community is always a means. But when community becomes an end, that's when the Christian bubble, that's when the Babel party, the self-indulging, sinful gatherings occur. Okay? That's when it grows. But, but listen, you need both. Okay? You need both. Gathering and scattering. A healthy gathering will result in a powerful scattering. But, but there's seasons for this too, right? For the church as a whole, for, for you as individuals, the, there's seasons or rhythms of inreach and outreach, right? 
For almost two years, me and my family have been in this um, in-reach healing uh, from our own hurt wounds mode from, from our previous church experience before coming to this church. For two years, just, just kind of tending to these wounds and allowing the church to actually care for us and love us. Right? See, we were in a season of, of in-reach, of self-care, but now I feel that we're more on the side of season of outreach, caring for others now. So now the seasons, so, so know the seasons, know which season you're in, the rhythms of in and out, in reach, outreach, okay? So gathering and scattering, figure out what season or what part of rhythm you're in in the Christian life, right? which, which part are you in, where's your rhythm, right? what season are you in, okay? Second, reflect. Um, uh, reflect, you know, it's been an absolute burden. It's been an absolute burden on leadership not having everyone together, sometimes wondering how our people are doing, wondering how we can best care for people during this time. And these feelings are good. They're right. But we also have to recognize and believe that God has an amazing plan for this state that our church is in. So reflect, reflect. How has your time being scattered from others in the church been? Reflect on what the Lord has done in the scattering of his people. What has the last four to five months brought to you and your family? Where do you see God's hand of grace? God's presence and amazing grace is found in our gathering, but as well, he's also found in the scattering, too. He was there with the people of Babel. He was there with the early Christian church. He, he is certainly here for us. One of the ways that I've seen God's hand during this time of scattering for me personally is Man, I, I just, I reconciled with my best friend of whom I've known since the second grade, and we had a follow-up for two years, two whole years, and, and God used this pandemic, this time of scan, for us to reconcile and be, and, and be, be best friends again, right? By God's grace, I've, I've been learning more and more, more than ever before uh, just how to enjoy my children rather than just boss them around, you know? So, so question, where have you seen God's grace in the scattering for you? Where do seeds of thankfulness and praise need to blossom? So reflect. So rhythm, reflect. And finally, really quick, respond. Respond to the message um, and pray, Lord, take control of this season of scattering. Okay, Lord, please take control of this season of scattering. Um, repent. Repent for any unhealthy bubbles you may have been building during this time of scattering. And then also seize, okay, seize whatever opportunity that you see the Lord giving you in our scattered state as a church. Okay, so rhythm, reflect, respond. Rhythm, reflect, respond. Uh, I'll, I'll, I'll close with this. Um, uh, David Vetter was born on September 21, 1971, at the Texas Children's Hospital in Houston. After 20 seconds, 20 seconds of exposure to the world, he was placed in a plastic isolator bubble. He was nicknamed Bubble Boy. He was diagnosed with severe combined immunodeficiency, also otherwise known as SID, S-C-I-D. And he was forced to live in a specially constructed sterile plastic bubble from birth. In 1983, the veterans learned of a new procedure that would allow bone marrow transfusions from donors who are not perfectly matched. They agreed to it. David's sister, Catherine, donated her marrow. But four months 
just four months after receiving the bone marrow transfusion from his sister, David died. David died from lymphoma. He was only 12 years old. A child was never meant to live in isolation. Human beings were never created nor intended to live in isolation. We as a church were never meant to be in our own bubbles. The church of Jesus Christ was never created to be an isolated entity shut off from the world. The church was meant to move. It was meant to scatter as well as gather. When God's church fails to scatter, living amongst and reaching out to the rest of this world through Jesus' strategy of discipleship, if it fails to do that, if the church fails to disciple, if it fails to scatter, it decays and eventually dies. But there's hope. But there's hope. Thanks to therapy made possible by David's own blood cells, 90% of children who contract the very same disease that David had are now living full and normal lives. Praise the Lord. Long-term isolation in a bubble is no longer considered a treatment option for those who suffer from SID. These children are free from their barriers of isolation, free from their prisons because of, Jesus, because of David's blood. Right? In much the same way, you know where I'm going with this, right? Jesus' blood shed on the cross makes way and empowers amazing love and freedom that is ours. Love that is so overwhelming that it cannot be contained within the church walls. By the power of the blood, we are set free from our own sinful ways, from the dark forces and the traps to go in courage and boldness to have others know of our Christ. The bubbles of self-preservation, comfortability, and selfishness no longer have to be yielded to. We are all free. We are all free to love all. We are all free to show Christ. We are all free to be Christ to others. Amen? Because of what was done on the cross of Calvary, we are free to be a powerful, sent, and scattered church. Let's pray.